the book, how we got it and how to get the most out of it. We've been looking at Isaiah 66, four verses, and the one we've been focusing on in the last little while is that verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We started to look at how that could be a possibility and how that happened, and last week we studied the example of King Josiah refurbishing the temple and One of the priests finds the book, the book of the law, brings it to Josiah, and as he hears it read aloud, he tears his clothes, he weeps, and he leads his nation back to the Lord. What are the steps to take? That's what I want to... This is the last study in this uh, verse. The one who trembles at my word. Here are five steps of which I am absolutely certain will help produce the kind of heart that is tender and sensitive to God's word. One, expose your heart to the means through which the Holy Spirit will work. Read your Old Testament and what you'll find, especially in the prophet Ezekiel and others, is the only one who can take that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh is the Spirit of God. When we talk about the Spirit giving us a heart of flesh on which the law of God can be written and abide inwardly, I don't just mean that the Holy Spirit makes us more emotional than we would have been before. You don't need the Holy Spirit to stir up your emotions. Uh, We all know that movies, happy movies, sad novels, upbeat TV shows... There are emotional reactions that get stirred up in all of us, Christian, non-Christian alike. When I'm talking about the Holy Spirit working to give us a sensitive heart, I mean a sensitive heart toward God. Clyde Kilby, C.S. Lewis scholar, said one of the great tragedies of the fall is the way it makes us bored with repeated glories. Bored with repeated glories. Only the Holy Spirit can make me as moved by and inclined toward with my heart the things of God as I am to my own inward desires, material things, the outward things of this world. Only the Holy Spirit can make you and me as inwardly awake to the things of God as we are toward earthly things. But then where does that leave us? Do do we just pray? Cross our fingers? Hope the Holy Spirit comes and does something special in our hearts? No. I mean, I can't do the spiritual work, that's true, but I am still involved in responding to God's grace... And I need to put myself into situations where, to the best of my ability, I am lessening earthly distractions to the Spirit's inward reforming and reshaping of my thoughts, my desires, my affections. I can't do the inward work. Only the Spirit of God can do it. But I can open the door. I can cooperate. There are so many... Ordinary things that we all do together in our Christian walk. 
We pray. We read our Bibles. We go to church. We sing. We serve. We give. But here's something important to remember. Especially at the beginning of those things. I don't do any of them because I feel inclined to do them. I do all of them together so that I will start to feel inclined to do them. There are all sorts of Christians who don't get it. Who, who, who never do build a regular devotional life and, and kind of schlunk around to church every six weeks when they've got nothing else to do. And the reason they don't is those things don't excite them. And what they don't understand is the reason those things don't excite them is because they don't consistently do them. In other words, those are the things the Holy Spirit uses to create the appetite. And until I step out and put myself in the way where the Holy Spirit is going to work and administer grace to my heart and start to work that to make me possess that kind of a trembling heart until I put myself in the flow of where the Holy Spirit does those things I never will feel inclined to do them if you're waiting for that you will wait till Jesus comes to expect to feel inclined first and then do those things is to try to do the Spirit's work for him these are the means the Holy Spirit uses to soften and plow up my heart. These are the means the Holy Spirit uses to replace old affections with new ones. Point number two. Take more seriously the warnings and judgments of God's word. The old Puritan Richard Sibes wrote... Faith constantly sets the day of judgment before the believer's eyes. This causes him to live in the fear of the Lord. Well, Pastor Don, I think that all this talk about wrath and judgment is, uh, is just that. It's a little Puritan, it's a little gloomy, and uh, it's not a very zippy way to live life. I, I, that's not what I choose to think about. And if those are your thoughts... You need, just like Josiah, to, to, they found this book and brought it to him. And you need to blow the dust off it, open it up, and start to read. And you'll see things like this. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead... And by his appearing and his kingdom. He's going to give Timothy a whole bunch of instructions. But the way he starts to prepare Timothy to take those things seriously. You can read the words. I'm not making them up. Timothy's a pastor. He's a Christian. He's saved. And Paul writes to him and he says, I'm going I'm to give you some instructions and I want you to know how much these things matter and you won't see the importance of them until you place yourself right now in front of the throne of God. 
2 Corinthians 5.11. Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. But, but just notice the first part of that. Paul wasn't just motivated by love for people to take the gospel to them. He was motivated by the fear of the Lord. There's an accountability here. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, Peter would stand here tonight and address Cedarview Community Church. What, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What, what makes us want to live in holiness and godliness? Well, we have an understanding that there is this great cataclysmic new creation coming. And everything that we think is important now will be revealed to be trivial in comparison. Today's church seems increasingly blind to the loving work of grace poured into our souls by remembering the second coming and the judgment of God. Three, take special heed against sinning against conscience. Probably shouldn't have used the word against twice. Take special heed about sinning against conscience. Sing against conscience. We'll talk about that just for a minute. All sin um, stains and, and darkens the person who commits the sin. And all sin requires repentance and the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. So all sins stain, but, but sins against conscience. In other words, when, when, I, when, I, when I know God speaking to me in my own thoughts by the Holy Spirit, pressing me in a different direction than the one I want to go. So, so when there's that kind of light that comes from the Lord, but I still persist in some kind of disobedience... That kind of sin, a sin against conscience, does more than just stain, as all sin does. Sinning against conscience darkens the understanding. It, it desensitizes the heart toward future revelations of the Spirit of God. Future guidance from the Holy Spirit that will be designed in areas I don't even see yet down the road where he's going to work to keep my life safe and clean and pure. But when I sin now against conscience, something starts to diminish and numb to what would be future works of grace of the Spirit of God in my heart. So I don't just lose cleanness at the moment. I lose protection for my future. Did I make that clear? Listen to me. A small sin, I know that's hard to measure. A small sin 
against conscience is more damaging than a big sin committed in ignorance. A small sin against conscience is more damaging than a big sin committed in ignorance. We're so prone to justify what we consider to be small, isolated sins. Tell me if you've heard this in one form or another. Maybe not these exact words, because I get it all the time. You talk to someone and you say to them, you shouldn't be doing this. And it's not that they deny what you're saying. How many have heard something like this? Are you saying I'm going to lose my salvation because of this one thing? Are you saying God's going to send me to hell for this one sin? How many have heard something like that? Let me just see your hand. Put it up. Let me just see. Yeah, it's a very common response. I had a... Not all that long ago, I had a lady in my office and she was telling me about a situation she was involved in. Doesn't come much to the church. I don't think you would know her. And she almost fell out of her chair when I said to her, by your own words, you know better than this. And if you can continue in this kind of rebellion, you're going to go to hell. Nobody says that anymore. And she looked at me and said, you can't know that. It's one thing. I came across a quote. If you don't take anything else home tonight, take this quote. Is the quote um, by Thomas Brooks in your notes? Okay, this, this is church. This is gold. All right, this is gold. Over 400 years ago, he wrote these words. The idea that he's dealing with is that contemporary argument I just gave you. Well, one sin, come on. God's not sending me to hell for one sin. Okay, that's, that's, he didn't know it yet, but that's what Brooks is actually writing about 400 years ago. Small sins make way for greater ones. We do not have the power to keep off sin as we please. By yielding to the lesser, we give opportunity for Satan to tempt us with the greater. So sometimes, this is brilliant, so sometimes the lighter the temptation, the more dangerous the sin. For the love of one sin, some have lost God and their souls forever. This is because many times small sins are more dangerous. Great sins startle the soul and awaken repentance. But little ones breed and work secretly until they trample the conscience. That's what we're looking at, sin against conscience. Until they trample the conscience and the soul. Sin always grows by degrees until you cannot prevail over it. That is brilliant. And everyone said, that's why, if you read your New Testament, you will find sin is talked about everywhere. It's not in the church, but it is in the New Testament. It would be hard to find a chapter without a mention of sin. In the New Testament. 
But particularly, there's an emphasis on sins against conscience. Here's a sampling. I'll read fast. Acts 24, 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. This is what I work on. The conscience. 1 Timothy 1, 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. 1 Timothy 3, 9. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 1 Peter 3.16, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. If you kept track reading that through, you would have noted that things like faith, holiness, and the leading of the Holy Spirit are all directly tied to keeping a clean conscience before God. All of those things shrivel up when we sin against conscience. That's what we're talking about when we're looking at how to have a heart increasingly that trembles at God's word. Four. Keep your heart tender by avoiding sexual sin. I'm not sure you could prove from scripture that some sins are more damning than others. But I think you could easily see that some are more damaging. Not more damning, but more damaging. I was thinking about the life of David. You go through the life of David and you'll find he does several things wrong in different places. Though called a man after God's own heart. Remember when he takes a census and he numbers the people? And uh, God condemns him for it. That's where God says, do you want... Do you want uh, here's three different judgments. Do you want this? Which ones do you pick? And David says, uh, you judge me. I don't want to fall into the hands of men. You can't trust them. You judge me. And that's really what marks David as a man after God's own heart. He was never perfect, but, but he always seemed quick to feel the pain of his own sin. The exception to that is when he sins with Bathsheba... And that came very close to being the end of David. He felt guilty about what he had done, but he never did come clean. If you know the story at all, David never did come clean on his own. Never did. He only repented after Nathan comes and confronts him with his sin. And when Nathan knows about it, and when Nathan the prophet confronts David... Nathan tells a story and he puts David's sin into another person's life. And when David sees his own sin in someone else's life, it really looks ugly. I've, I've often thought about that. Sin always looks worse than somebody else, doesn't it? And then he finally repents. But it takes him a long time. It takes him a long time. There's a particular pull power in sexual sin to, to bring a person into darkness and deeper deception and more guilt. Sexual sin, almost more than any other, keeps a person from walking in the light. Let me just say to everybody in the room here, God's, nobody says this anymore. But I want to say it. 
God's plan for sexual purity has never changed and never will, and he will judge. It is abstinence before marriage, and it is fidelity after marriage. It is abstinence before marriage, and it is fidelity after marriage. It will never change. It will never change. Five. To keep your heart tender, keep yourself in fellowship with the body of Christ. Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're talking about keeping a soft, tender heart. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These are not good days for pastors to be yammering at people about making serious commitments to the local church because there are just all sorts of trendy voices telling you that you can be seriously committed to Jesus but not too crazy about his bride, the church. And that's what makes that verse so important, that Hebrews 3.13 How how can I keep myself from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? A hard, that image of a hard heart. I mean, what kind of, if I were some kind of poet or something, how would I make that vivid to you? A hard heart, like like something gets tentacles wrapped all around it or frozen in ice. And it's in there. And so the Holy Spirit tries to work and it just goes and bounces off. Can't, can't, can't feel. Can't care. Hard. How do I avoid that? It's urgent. How do I avoid that? And what this text says is, I can't do that by myself. And you can't do that by yourself. But I'm going to read my Bible. Read it all day. I'm going to buy good Christian books. And I'm going to, I'm going to listen to podcasts. Do it till your hair turns gray. And if you're not gathering together regularly with other Christians. It will not keep your heart sensitive to the spirit of God. text says, sin makes its inroads into my life by deceitfulness, that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't worry, Pastor Don. I had someone say this. Don't worry, Pastor Don. If I think I'm being deceived by sin, I'm going to make sure I'll take care of it right away. See, do you understand... If you're deceived, not only will you not take care of it, if you're deceived, you won't even know it. That's how deception works. We need to bounce our lives off each other. The writer of Hebrews said, to avoid the encroachment of sin's deceitfulness in my own heart, I need the input. The rest of the body of Christ in a local church. I need it regularly, daily. That's the word used in the text. 
It is so... Look around you. Look around you tonight. How many of these people in these empty chairs, how many of them do you think are doing something really, really important tonight? I don't mean it as a funny question. How many do you think are doing something really crucial tonight? How many think are in the hospital, emergency? What happens is, remember that quote? One of the great tragedies of the fall is the way it makes us bored with repeated glories. It's very easy to ignore the essentials and look for something brilliant. One of my favorite stories, I'll close with this. Very well-to-do lady facing, it's a true story, it's not. Empty nesting and uh, her husband had passed away years ago and she was a woman of means and lonely. She thought what she would want to do is have some company. And so she went out and she bought a very expensive talking bird, $25,000. This bird could sing Italian opera. It could, it could recite Shakespeare, Bible verses, make conversation. She thought, this is perfect. She bought the bird, bought the bird home. The bird just sat there. She thought maybe the bird is bored, so she went back to the same pet store where she bought it, and she bought the bird a little swing, you know, so the bird could sit on the swing in the cage, and it would go back and forth. The bird... Just sat there. He seemed to be tired, listless. She went and she got a little bell that the bird could ring. Thought that might make things interesting for the bird. And she put the bell up in the cage. Again, the bird just seemed to be growing weak and tired. She got the bird a little set of stairs. You could walk up one side and you could walk down the other side. Thought that would be exercise. The bird might like that. bought the bird a mirror. Maybe the bird was lonely, and if he saw its own reflection in the mirror, could cheer the bird up. Nothing seemed to be working. One morning she came down, she went to get herself some coffee, and, well, I, I hate to be the bearer of the news. And she went over to the cage, and there was a little bird, tummy up. She went to the pet store, and she said, you know that bird... It was so expensive, and I was looking forward to so much. And it was just getting weaker and weaker, and, and there didn't seem to be anything I could do. And So this morning I came down, and he was dead. The guy says, that just makes no sense. This is a very special bird, and there was nothing wrong with that bird. Did he speak? No, not much. Well, one, one thing at the very, very end, the night before. Well, what did he say? And the bird said to the lady, soft voice, don't they sell any bird seed in that pet store? Some things are essential. <laughs> Some things are essential. It is still the case that coming together as the body of Christ 
is essential. I outline those five things. Take them home in that outline. You can't create a tender heart. You can put yourself in the way where the Holy Spirit will soften your heart as you walk in those disciplines. They have never changed, and they never will, and they still work. Let's pray.